This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Uh-oh. Welcome in, my friends. We're back on Ravel. <laughs> Uh-oh. Hello. Uh-oh. That's some like solid uh, John Ralphio energy from Parks and Rec. That's what I'm going <laughs> oh, yeah. for. Ben Schwartz. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's very good. Uh, anyway, what are you guys drinking? <laughs> um... I feel like I should be bringing the energy, but you're going for it. Uh, I'm drinking a, I brought a latte home. I'm drinking a quad, but it's decaf, oat milk, and caramel, and it's delicious. Okay. Wow. Fact check. Decaf espresso still has a little bit of caffeine. True? It's so negligible. The science is pretty solid. You would have to drink gallons of decaf, but I did read a paper recently that any stimulant that is associated with decaf coffee, because some people do feel stimulated. There are other components in coffee besides caffeine that do have stimulant effects. Caffeine is just the strongest one. Mm. And decaf only weeds out caffeine. Okay. So some people are just mm-hmm. like hyper uh, sensitive to like the other components. Sure. Interesting. Gotcha. Well, there I didn't go. know I was getting a science lesson today. There you go. You're welcome. Emily, what nice. are you drinking? I'm too fisting it today. I have uh, a Waterloo watermelon flavor. Uh, it's great. Love it. And also a glass of orange juice, because why not? It's in my fridge, so there you I'm going to consume it. <laughs> it's a single ingredient smoothie is really what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got tired of making smoothies. So. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm sipping on a Canada Dry ginger ale today. Oh, now, goody. friends, coming out of... Our conversation about God's emotions, I was feeling very mindful and very aware of the points, especially around the word hate, that was making me rather uncomfortable because I don't like thinking Mm. of our God in terms of hate. Sure. Right. I also have, you know, so like it's a hard category to play in just because I don't think there there is hate in God. However, us Christians, we talk a lot about Judgment Day, too. We talk a lot about the final judgment, uh, the day of the Lord. Yeah. Other, other phrases for it. The day of the Lord judgment day and day of reckoning. See, I mean, and it's, it's complicated for me because I don't know how I should feel about the judgment day. And that's what I want to talk about today. A little bit of eschatology, but I don't want to take it as far as debating hell or heaven or afterlife. I literally just want to talk about what Mm, judgment day is. Is it an actual event? What would or what did it accomplish? And should we be afraid of it? Whoa. Oh, man. Um, first off, have I ever told you guys, at least on here, about my rapture story? Oh, no. Please do it now. No. I can't remember if I've shared it with you. Okay. I, this will be quick. Uh, this was when I was in ministry school in Michigan, getting my Padawan of Divinity. And <laughs> mm-hmm. we somehow were like talking about rapture stuff. And me and my roommates had this idea to fake rapture one of our roommates, you know, where you like... This is so mean. This is so, so mean. mean. Um, <laughs> but you like leave 
your clothes on the floor and you like leave the room or something. Anyway, we did it to him and he didn't get it. Like he had never oh. grown up with the rapture. So it just like went over his head. And Aww. we were like, well, we can't just like waste a perfectly good prank on someone who's not going to get it. So uh, we realized that our other roommate would have totally known what the rapture was. So we spent oh at least weeks planning out a fake rapture. Like it was everything from <laughs> timing, how long it was going to take for us to shed our outer layer of clothes and then jump out the window and then make an escape around the house. Uh, we were going to have our buddy come pick us up, but he was going to leave the car running with his clothes on the seat. We were going to send our buddy outside. And then we were like, no, this is like too good. Like he's going to notice it's a joke. He's going to know it's too convenient. So then we got to the level of we're going to leave someone else behind, but they're going to be in on it. And they're going to accuse our friend that we were trying to prank of like pranking him and be like, no, man, like cut it out. This isn't funny. Like this is like this is not a funny joke. Whoa. And it would like really dig in to convince him. So we had like we had this whole thing planned, but we just didn't know when we were going to do it. So uh, we're in class one day. I don't remember which class. It might have been a Bible study methods class. And our uh, like professor, teacher dude who's really smart, dude, uh, he's, has like a doctorate in philosophy. He's been a pastor for like decades. He just like let it slip that he thinks the rapture is unbiblical. And all of us were like, wait, 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 I'm sorry, what? Mm. And he was like, oh yeah, like, well, we don't have time to get into it today. Um, if you guys want to like hear about it again, uh, I guess we'll just like make a lecture day out of it. Um, rapture day will be December 5th. And <laughs> immediately all of us were like, that's the day. That's really fun. That's oh, fun to put that on the calendar. My. The rapture day is, yes, that's the, yeah. Ooh. So then we were yes. like, well, that's obviously the day we have to fake rapture yeah, our buddy. Of course. Like that has to be it. So we're like <laughs> approaching it literally the day before our friend Tom, who was going to be our confederate that we were going to also leave behind, but he was going to be in on it. He backed out and he was like, guys, I think this is going too far. I've really been thinking about it. I don't think I can do it. I think it's too real. It's too mean. Oh, oh. And we were like, well, that's, that's okay. You don't have to be involved. We can just do it. And he's like, well, like, I'll tell him it's fake. <gasps> oh. And we we're like, okay, well, hmm, that's fine. So anyway, we didn't do it. We went to the lecture, learned about how it's like unbiblical, like it's not found in the text. And then later when we went out to lunch, we like recounted all of this to him. And he just sat there silent for a second. And he was like, I think I would have bought that. <gasps> Whoa. Whoa. That is oh. diabolical, that's, Josh. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I love So that's I the love, best prank I've never pulled. I love <laughs> Wow, what a way to that's a way to say that, isn't it? Yeah. I love <laughs> that. that your friend goes and like threatens to pop the bubble on the prank as your professor <laughs> yeah. is like popping the bubble on, <laughs> on, oh, yeah. on, on the, the actual reality of the rapture it's for It's very you. fitting. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's so, fitting. Yeah. So Josh, how early do you think you were being taught eschatology and end times? Uh, to be honest, I don't think it was taught very explicitly very much. Um, I remember some church couple gave me the Left Behind Kids book for a birthday when I was like a preteen, somewhere around there. And then I like really grew into them. I remember one of my parents saying that they didn't give me the books initially because they didn't want it to scare me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So to be honest, I think some of those ideas were withheld a little bit, sure. Uh, regardless of their personal opinions. So I got really into the Left Behind books for a long time, and then honestly, it was like in ministry wow. school where I was like finally starting to 
rethink about them for the first time. Sure. Whereas, so mm-hmm. I, growing up, it was like seventh or eighth grade when I started doing a life group at our church. And we did, no joke, we did three month study of eschatology. And I, I remember wow. one, I, I remember one explicitly where it was like the, the whole life group was about comparing like premillennialism, postmillennial, and amillennial all in one and then they were like okay and be ready for the next three weeks because we're gonna like deep dive into one of these each week and i remember at the very end they were like okay so now you know all these ideas and by the way we being good non-denominational but baptist we are all pre-millennial and i was just like okay we are all pre-millennial so like for (laughs) most of my life i was just like okay this is how it's gonna be but i'm still i still can't shake a feeling of like legitimate terror at the prospect of the judgment day I grew up believing in Mm, actually being true. So Emily, the Methodist take, tell us about how you grew up with eschatology and how you think about it now. We, uh, we Methodists and act. Okay. So to be clear, not all Methodists think, uh, the same. Um, so that's fair. That's fair. I would say specifically Laurel UMC's church, we did not talk about eschatology, really. Like, we did not talk about the Day of Reckoning. Hmm. We are one of those churches, again, like I'm talking singular church, that really our focus was on the resurrection and like that, like that, that's all we need to focus on. Wow. That's really all that. Okay. We kind of want to stay in that happy-go-lucky feel where the sun is shining, we see our risen Lord, um, and we can now live into that. And the rest, for some reason, just like the concept of the Holy Spirit, we don't really like to touch on a whole lot. And I don't know Mm. if it's a denominational thing or if it's just that church specifically, but what I can tell you is... The Methodist Church doctrine, like as a whole, what they try to do is to unpack the word eschatology and this idea of dealing with eschaton. Uh, And really, it's just one of those things where it's not completely accurate from a Christian perspective to say that it's about the end of the world. Hmm. Like we that's that's one of those things that we we don't really know what that looks like. So we're still grappling with this idea of like, why does it even matter? Why should we even be talking about it? Um, Do we Hmm. focus on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? You know, heaven on earth. One of like topics like that is where we really try to wrestle with more rather than this idea of like judgment day. Okay, not not so worried about the the future rather than living yeah. into the present and manifesting Christ yeah. how you feel called to. Hmm. That honestly feels a lot healthier to me <laughs> than doing the the numerology <laughs> and all that nonsense. Um So what about the day of reckoning? What about judgment day? I I want to hear from you guys. Like do you think it's going to happen the way you've heard it's going to happen or is it an event to talk about at all? I don't even know how to answer that first question because I feel like I've just heard so many different ideas about what people think is going to happen, Hmm. you know, between 
like small new religious movements or mm-hmm. uh, even mainstream Christianity. Like you brought up like the different pre post a millennial takes. Yeah. And like those, it's so weird that like, it's such a interesting subsection of theology to me because it's so, I almost want to say out there, but what do, I guess what I mean by that is like, it's so futuristic mm. and sure. doesn't seem immediately applicable mm-hmm. that it just amazes me that there is such a diversity of opinion about how if maybe things will happen at the end of hum- human era or something. Sure. So can we walk you it know? back further then? And let's just talk about a God that judges. How do we feel about a God that judges? Because honestly, like just that sentence makes me equally uncomfortable mm. as saying maybe God is capable mm. of hate in a way. Oofta. I think part of the reason why, and I also have some uneasy feeling when it comes to that sentence of God judging or God being a judge is our human understanding and use of the word judge. Like I just think of Mm. like the literal justice system and a judge and a persecutor and a defense attorney and, you know, the whole shebang. And we just have a very negative outlook on the justice system, I think. And so that could possibly skew our perspective of God being judge, whether you're looking at Judge Kavanaugh and all that spiel that went on or other injustices <laughs> with a judge, you know, things like that. Yes, I totally threw that out there. I, I don't care. <laughs> um, we just have there's so many things around this image, this title of a judge. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know where to begin with that when we now place that with God. I think what's also interesting to me is that the Bible itself seems to have different depictions of God as judge. Like, yes. Uh, I don't remember exactly which parable Jesus talks about it, but Psalms also mentions the idea that God's mercy triumphs over justice. So like, even if like we have a depiction of God as judge, there's also this thread throughout the Bible of God's mercy being stronger than God's judgment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like there's a, Jesus has a parable about it, but I cannot remember it for the life of me. Hmm. I guess he sort of touches on it on the one where there's a master who forgives his uh, servant's debt, but then that servant goes out and doesn't forgive his servant's debt, and then he throws mm, that servant mm-hmm. in prison. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think, I, I, I like your question, Stephen, I really do. And to be honest, it's I don't know how to answer it because there is such a thing to be wrestled with in the biblical text about God's judgment, like between Jesus's parables or apocalyptic scenarios or old Testament prophets. Like there is also that thread of God as judge and God will bring justice. And to be honest, I really think that's a difficult one to reconcile. And maybe that's why there's so many takes on it. Hmm. What if we took a step back or try to condense it and we just think about the topic of just judgment in general? Like, how do we just feel about judgment as a topic? I feel like this one gets thrown out a lot in defense of Christians being hypocrites. Like, Christians shouldn't judge. Hmm. Like, that idea is out there. Right. Um, Which, definitely some Christians judge more than others. That that definitely happens. Right, and Mm -hmm. that's straight out of Matthew 7, right? That's where we get, do not judge, first take care of the plank in your own eye before a speck in another's. Like, it's not your Mm -hmm. place. See, but you immediately go back to like the it's not your place language and immediately the implication is it's God's place to do the judging and we're here. Like Mm. even James talks Mm. about judgment all the time and it's like, don't judge a brother 
because as the judge, you're assuming also the the place of lawgiver, at least in James's argument. So if if you weren't the one who gave the law, who are you to judge someone's actions against that law? Sure. But immediately that comes back to, but God has that right to judge and measure you against the law set up. Uh, and plus, I think that if someone was going to point to Jesus touching on this in any way, my first thought is Jesus talking about like the separation of the sheep and the goats, which is a weird mm, story. Yeah. To be honest, I feel like it's just so hard for me to even like conceptualize any opinion on what will or will not happen at the end of human time. Sure. And how God is involved in that. Mm-hmm. Like, even though like it seems to be in the biblical text and Jesus's stories seem to allude a little bit more clearly than the apocalyptic texts, I would argue. But I also just feel like uh, it's more or less conjecture. Like, it's not spelled out straightforwardly. Hmm. It's so veiled and it's in the form of stories and analogies and it is not spelled out. To be honest, to me, it seems more like like story conjecture. Like, this is the way things are going and this will be like, this is like the analogy of the road we're headed down. Oh, whoa. Mm. Okay. And even Jesus is speaking that way? Is that what you're saying? Say more to that. Yeah, I mean, Jesus speaks so uh, parabolically, parabole. He speaks so parabole anyway. (laughs) Like, he already uses that structure. Like, he uses it to critique the Pharisees. He uses it to talk about the kingdom. It, like he doesn't he doesn't draw up like specific blueprints about the kingdom of heaven. Mm. He says the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed and it's mm-hmm. like a good master and it's like this and he uses so many different metaphors to describe what the kingdom of God will look like and I think in the same way even though he doesn't talk about it as much he does talk about it. I think he talks about any form of judgment in the same way mm. that like you will be judged by God in this way, but he like he uses it in the same like metaphor parable structure. Mm, okay. Mm. What do you think of? I want to take it back to the sheep and the goats, or the wheat and the tares is another good parable, like another good example. What do you think of that sorting action that he seems to be giving us explicitly through parable? Like we know it's a parable, we know it's a story, but it feels like there's a truth behind the story like a truth under the truth that he's actually getting at and there seems to be like totally you know an enemy goes and sows tares among the wheat of a farmer and the farmer says no let the tares grow up with the wheat because if if we risk uprooting the tares right now we might kill all the wheat at the same time so let them grow Mm -hmm. all in their season and then when it comes time to harvest i will tell the reapers separate it then burn off the tares and keep the wheat as my crop like that's straight from Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. and, and there's mm-hmm. this, this sorting action that happens. And then you start getting into stories or ideas people have of the day of reckoning where it's, it's one by one. You are standing be- before God on the throne, answering for everything you did in your life. And you're being sorted, uh, you know, one way or another. Well, okay. No, this is a good example. I don't think it's clearly saying that. Okay. Like even with the mm-hmm. wheat and the tares example, like there's nothing in there about you have to account for everything you've done. It doesn't say that. No, that's true. But I do think that people get that from the Bible or like the trajectory of the Bible, Mm -hmm. that somehow the Bible leads us to this thing, just like the Bible led us to the concept of Trinity. It's not exactly spelled out, but it eventually led us there. 
And I feel like the same is true for like ideas about judgment. Like people tie together Daniel to Jesus to Revelation and they like make this right. thread or like this system of this is like the closest we think we can get. And that's how we end up with these like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial views, yeah. right? Well, and think about how it's played out in media and in other forms of art. You know, I think about TV shows or cartoons or whatever, where you see a character get up to the pearly gates and there's someone there at a desk with this giant book. You know, it's almost like a Santa Claus ordeal where they check the list twice, see if you're naughty or nice. Uh, and, and, and they go through, they say, oh, I see you did this and blah, blah, blah. And I... We've just fed into this idea that we have to account for every single thing that we've done. And yet when we get up to heaven or judgment day, whatever the case may be, it's all magically laid out for us. And that determines what then our afterlife looks mm. like. Like, that's just a crazy concept to me. So it's more pop culture than anything you feel like is guiding that. I think so. That idea yeah. of like the, the final judgment before you're ushered into your place as it were. Well, and like here's a great like The Good Place. That's a great show that I was demonstrates just that, of that. You know. Mhm. Mm I do agree with Emily that I think that depictions of afterlife are mostly influenced by pop culture, but I do think Stephen that you're probably right that these ideas of judgment, like judgment day, quote unquote, or like God's judgment somehow preceding any concept of afterlife. I do think that that's primarily from the Bible. Right. So I think I do think you're on to something there. Uh, what what do you think I'm on to then? Because I even I don't know. It's like <laughs> because I I mean, just to put it out here, I mean, I'm sure we'll have many, many episodes to unpack this, but I am full on like Christian universalist. So I don't think. Right. I don't think humans go to hell, even if hell exists. So how do you make sense of any sort of judgment? Well, so there. Yeah. There are two things that are constantly kind of like flipping over in my brain. One is the idea that the consequence of the sin we embody, the consequence of that sin is the punishment like wrapped into it, you know? Totally. Mm, yeah. So like, because we talk about sin being like the definition of sin in Hebrew or Greek being like missing the mark, like an archer missing the bullseye, right? I don't know. Have you, have you guys heard that? Maybe I just assume that we oh, all yeah, talk yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So we talk about sin being missing the mark, and there are consequences for missing the mark in a competition. Like, if you were literally lined up with other archers and in a competition and you miss the mark, there are natural consequences to your failure, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, it's how I read the parable of the prodigal son, is that the consequence of the younger son's pride, the younger son's arrogance... And the way he, like, spent all his money, took the inheritance early, thereby insulting his father. Like, everything he does wrong, he experiences the very natural consequences of that by the time he's, like, sleeping and trying to eat what the pigs are eating. Just because the consequence of his sin leads him to that place where now he, he feels that loss of dignity because he gave that dignity away. Not necessarily that he was disobeying a list of rules. And God in a very like, well, you've successfully followed these laws and unsuccessfully followed these laws and the bad outweighs the good. So now your life is going to be terrible. You know, like mm -hmm. I just think, think that sin comes baked in with the natural consequences of those actions. And mm -hmm. that in a way is an experience of judgment. And it also helps mm. to reframe the law in that God is not like 
an angry judge figure who wants to impose a law that no one can follow so that he can like get off on punishing them when they fail. Like no good parent does that. However, a good parent will watch a child make choices and allow them to experience the natural consequences of those choices Mm. in order that they understand what life is like. So that, so the law is set out to say like, God is saying, I have constructed this world in such a way, or I so believe that this in this way lays life, like follow my path and you will find goodness. And I mean, there's all sorts of commentary about like good people, like bad things happening to good people, but that's also because we're Uh, hmm. the odyssey. But yeah, yeah, but that's also because we're in a world where other people's sins can impact us and not it's not all just based on our own actions or our own thoughts measuring up to the sure. the rules or whatnot. So that's one whole angle to how I think about judgment as a universalist. I actually really like that angle. Okay. I think it makes a lot of sense. Sure. It's kind of like a not as creepy version of Jumanji in that way. Oh, how so? Oh, what? How so? Like, like you, you know, you, you roll the dice and you take, you know, you move those many spaces and you know, there's a consequence of how many spaces you moved, but you're not necessarily like in control of the dice that you roll per se, but you still have to go and carry out those consequences, whatever the case may be. How hmm. you're how you're describing it is we are in control of the dice that we roll hmm. and mm-hmm. we are in control of the spaces that we move. And yet we still have these consequences and these actions that come from that. And it's. Yeah, I don't know. That was just like the first thing that popped up. Right. Like, oh, it's a nice so, rendition of Jumanji. So, <laughs> that's fine. I also think it's not outside of the biblical scope. No. Like, I think that that could easily be argued from the text. Like, the Bible talking about evil befalling evildoers and um, the way of Jesus bringing life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sin having its own reward. What do you think of the uh, concept of suffering tying into this? Like, could oh. suffering be a synonym for judgment? Oh, because like kind of like you were talking about, Stephen. Like I do agree with you that I think that sin's judgment is often the consequences of like failing to be perfect. Mm. And uh, I I've read this book a couple years ago by a sociologist. It's called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Decides, and it's about it's a sociological take on abortion and neonatal care, capital punishments, and physician assisted death. Woofed up. And, oh, it's fascinating. And it's about mostly about the U.S. Supreme Court cases surrounding those. But his, uh, he opens with uh, this commentary about how it's so difficult to talk about human universals across different cultures. But in the limited time that sociology has been a scientific discipline, it's pretty definitive to say that all cultures try to minimize suffering. That suffering is looked at as mm-hmm. a bad thing, mm. and all cultures try to minimize it. Yeah. So tying it back to this, is the reason why we don't like the idea of judgment tied to the fact that we want to minimize suffering, and is judgment, quote unquote, itself just a synonym for the suffering of our consequences? Maybe. Maybe. Man. Because I also don't know if I like that idea. Well, not entirely. Okay. The only reason I say that is because there are some elements of suffering that are outside of our control. Like, even if we didn't necessarily sin, we can still suffer. Hmm. 
you know. Yeah, totally. Job is a perfect example then. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of, you know, someone had put a comment on our Instagram uh, discussion post for this last episode. And it was, um, oh, it was for our prayer episode. And it was discussing, you know, why should my prayers be answered when all these other prayers of those who are starving, those who are abused, those who are neglected are not being answered. And it's, you know, and I was trying to wrap my brain around that. And I come back to this idea of there are just some things that just happen. And we as humans have control over some of those things. And other times we just don't. Life is just so complicated and so messy. But what we can do is take ownership of that. And I think suffering is the same thing. Mm. We... We do have some control of our suffering in the sense of, yeah, if we, I can think of the time where I was walking the dog with my mom and I had my rollerblades on. I said, mom, I want to hold the dog's leash and yell mush. And she said, okay, well, good luck with that. So I yelled mush and guess what? The dog ran and I biffed it on my knees and I suffered the consequences of having a boo-boo knee because I decided to be an idiot while walking the dog. Mm. But I think about those (laughs) who have life circumstances that they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't they didn't have mm-hmm. any cause in their life to where they're now suffering with cancer or, you know, infertility or famine or whatever the case may be. Suffering is one of those things, too, where it's just messy. And I don't think that can entirely be explained by a synonym for judgment. That's a good take. I, I like that. I like that take a lot. I was going to take it in the direction of I like I think of suffering a lot in Buddhist terms now where suffering is merely resistance to pain. But in in cases that Emily just spelled out for us, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think Buddhism is necessarily helpful in that moment because it it really does feel like some people in our world across the globe are just handed much worse lives and to for me as a, a white middle class a young dude in America to be like, hey, your suffering is only because you're resisting the pain. Maybe just like that. Mm. That feels so unfair. And that's like, oh, my God, shut up, you idiot. Like, of course, that can't mm-hmm. be the only answer. But in my life, I do feel like that is actually beneficial, which is so like, I really don't know sure. how to factor suffering into judgment because like the the pain of experiencing two miscarriages in my family now uh, like entering into grief feels a lot different than trying to resist it and thereby suffering mm-hmm. and maybe I'm just trying to get really fancy with the terms but I don't feel like I'm suffering through miscarriage I feel like I'm grieving through miscarriage and mourning and I feel like one is something we can do with God and suffering is something we do when we I don't know like just resisting what's being handed to us good or bad so that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful, Josh. No, that is. I, I really like the way you guys took that because it just brings me back to the importance of alleviating suffering in its current form now. Like that to me, mm-hmm. that seems like such a practical type of theology mm. versus like, I still don't kind of understand why so many people get obsessed with uh, figuring out judgment day and what god's judgment is i mean it's an interesting philosophical conversation to me but like in terms of people being more obsessed with quote-unquote figuring it out Mm. rather than like what's with what's right in front of them i just kind of don't get that disconnect yeah if 
you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, which helps others find the show. If you'd like to leave us a longer message, our email address is theravelpod at gmail.com. If you find this conversation valuable, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about the show on social media. You can join us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color, off his album, Here. Find his work on Spotify and Bandcamp. And remember to subscribe to Ravel so that you never miss a new episode. Thanks for listening. Do you think it's partly because some people are so focused on God's judgment also including like God bringing people to justice, like people who have caused us suffering. See, that's that's what I'm thinking about now is that I think Mm. I think there is a way we can frame judgment day because like I I grew up being told that we were premillennial people, but like be ready to make an account for everything you do. It was almost a way like to encourage some sort of mindfulness in a way and teaching us to be aware throughout our daily life and be like, would you want to explain to God why you just did that? Steven, little Steven, would you <laughs> like to, do you want to have to tell God? That, right. <laughs> um, but in a way of thinking about it, especially as a universalist, I've also, I've been thinking about judgment day as like equalization day. Like you read Jesus talk about how the last will be first. The first will be last. The rich shall be poor the poor shall be rich and this big reversal or this big equalization. And we talk about being co-heirs with Christ in the end of all ages where we become equal with Christ, like by, by what he's done to pull us out of death, darkness, Hades, like those epic icons from like early Greek and early Eastern Orthodox art where Jesus is holding the hands of Adam and Eve and pulling them out from the underworld. There's Um, an epic moment mm -hmm. where Jesus elevates us all to one level. And so much of Jesus's teaching is that if you dare to think that you are even above that, then I will bring you low. But if you are humble enough, I will bring you high. But so I think of judgment day as, as an equalization. So I do think there is in a way there's an accounting for, or having to say like, there must be justice for, sins committed against another. I think that's another base definition of sin in my paradigm is that sin is an action that actively degrades the dignity of another human being who is created in the image of God, just as yourself. So like an insult or like a physical hit or something like that, like that's all sin because you are trying to tip the Mm. scales one way or another. Whereas I think judgment day is God saying, leveling us all out and if we think we're high we're most definitely going low and then god will like raise up the lowly well so would you put judgment more as a synonym with redemption yes oh that's yes restorative justice restorative judgment Mm -hmm. is i think what god through christ embodies not retributive justice like needing and demanding blood or demanding like punishment in human terms for going against the law or going against another, you know? I actually feel pretty comfortable saying that, uh, like, God will redeem and God will restore because, like, that's what we see in the person of Jesus. 
Yeah. And we don't know exactly what it will look like, especially like at the end of time, whether or not we like whether dead people become conscious again or something like that, or it happens in future generations. But I feel pretty confident saying that agnostically, like we don't know for sure, but we know that it will be restorative and redemptive. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever and, it looks like. And I think we're not entirely supposed to know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that takes away the mystery and the beauty of faith. I also think it kind of takes the onus of responsibility off of us. It does, yeah. Like as much crap as some Christians get for like being too judgy and then you like get thrown the verses at you where it says like God will judge, like you were saying in James, Stephen. Yep. yep. If you took more of a restorative angle with it, but you only focused on that verse in James where you're like, well, no, like God's going to do it. So like, I don't, yeah, I, I don't need mm, to do it. Yeah. If like we take more of a redemptive restorative take, I think it's definitely a risk to assume that God is just going to do it all at the end and not use some of us right. to do it in our own time. Like, cause Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven is now and here and it's coming and it's not here yet. And we're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And like to assume that we're not, I think would be a really weird take. Well, and that goes to Matthew 25, like following the parable of the talents, Jesus has this whole spiel about when the son of man is here in judgment or comes to judge, the criteria is like, you gave me food to eat when I was hungry. You gave me water to drink when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was cold. You gave me shelter when I was exposed. You are the people offered eternal life. And then like in this very same passage, he turns around and says, you actually ignored all that. And mm-hmm. like there's language of fire, eternal punishment for the people who ignored that call. So like there is a way in that Jesus in the final judgment or I'm going to keep using this language of like final restoration or final equalization where Jesus does have the final say and actually gets to enact that. But in the meantime, we get to participate in a daily equalization day or daily like judgment day where we're helping people who need to be pulled up and restored and mm-hmm. speaking to the people who need to be brought lower, you know, mm. we get to participate in it is what I'm thinking now. I was just listening to a podcast from uh, the prophetic imagination station with the Mayfields and I'm listening to their series right now called the Lion, the witch and the evangelicals. And it's all about CS Lewis. Yeah. And I have not dug into the episode, but just so far, they've already addressed the problem of um, C.S. Lewis's take in The Last Battle being kind of controversial, where not just does he have Aslan include a member of a different religion, Mm -hmm. but he also excludes Susan, one of the kids from Narnia, from entering into Mm -hmm. heaven. And how it's like this kind of like weird controversial take that like most like as popular C.S. Lewis is in America, that dilemma is not talked about very much. Totally, and I yeah. do think it's interesting, like that part of judgment can somehow be inclusion, but it is also exclusion to others. Like kind of like what Jesus was saying with, um, "If you fed the least of these, you were feeding me." Like, but you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, just as you were worshiping Tash, you were actually worshiping Aslan. Sure. I don't know. I think it's intriguing, but again, I also feel like it's pretty speculative, right? Well, there is, so there there has been plenty of Christian language talking about the fires of hell are really the, the like the fire, how do they say it? Like the fires of God's love and whether you were t- 
tempered in such a way to experience that fire as like a burning desire and like ecstatic love for you. You experience the same mm-hmm. place as heaven, whereas someone who is not tuned into that fiery love directed toward them in love or or like a uh, a sanctifying burning, you know, then you are experiencing that exact same like fire of God's love as hell. Mm-hmm. That's what you got me thinking about, Josh, is like that simultaneous inclusion and exclusion, but seemingly in the same place. What do you think, Emily? I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to think. I'm, I'm about stuck. judgment. About I don't know. I'm, I'm coming back to a moment I had with my professor when we were in the Holy Land. We had a really long talk about where we stand on claiming Jesus as like our Lord and Savior, and one of our one of our classmates was stuck on this idea of judgment being a part of that. Um, and so I, it was kind of ironic that on that very day we were having this conversation, we went to Sisera Philippi, which I don't know if y'all know the significance of that oh, yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I it, don't. I can't remember why it's significant. It's uh, the, the gates of hell are supposedly there. Wait, what? Yes. What it, do you mean? So Sisera Philippi was a city that was built to honor Pan, to honor Baal and Pan. And it was this pagan fortress, essentially, is what it came down to. And so um, we see it in Matthew 16, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say I am? And they say, well, you are the son of God. And this is where he tells, you know, you are Peter, which means rock, you know, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so we were talking about what what was Jesus saying in this moment and someone had brought up, does this reflect Judgment Day? Like, are we going to enter this place essentially with Jesus where we're standing on a rock and we're standing at the gates of supposed hell? And are we going to be ready to attack the gates of hell or are we, you know, do we fall short and we just kind of stand back because we're not fully ready to claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, even like in the final days? And I was just stuck on that. And it brought me back to that conversation of, what if judgment day came and like, would I actually feel confident in like standing and saying like, yeah, I accept Jesus as my Lord and savior, because I think that's an element that we sometimes don't think about in judgment day. I think, again, this is probably pop culture and media. We think of judgment day and we think of, it just accounts for all the things that we've done, didn't do, should have done. And then we decide from there. But I think it really does come down to a personal responsibility of what do we believe? What do we claim? Have we actually thought about those things that we've done and those things that we should have done and taking ownership of that? Um, I don't. Yeah, I'm just stuck. <laughs> there's a confusing degree of uh, like there's a, there's shades of gray in between what seems to be earthly life and eternal life or eternal death. And like. Yeah. It almost sounds like Judgment Day is almost part of a like a purgatory idea where we go somewhere and then we have to go before the judge for sentencing almost. But like there's an in-between time, like even Hebrews, there's that verse that says for it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment all in the Mm -hmm. context of Christ having offered one final sacrifice needed to cover the demands of the law. So like there's, there's this weird purgatorial 
thing that comes in judgment day. So like, Emily, do you think you live your life as if the reckoning day or the judgment day is a future event for which you will have conscious experience of? That's a good question. Mm, I don't think so, but I can't answer why. I don't think I do either. I think I used to. Hmm. What encouraged you to set that down, Josh, if you used to believe that way? Honestly, probably just people not emphasizing it anymore. Oh, wow. It's as if or you don't some talk people... about it as much, it becomes less important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Emily, you're telling me preachers can preach about something other than fire and brimstone? <laughs> Weird. I, w- I, yeah, I know. I do think I maybe initially became a Christian because of like fear of judgment day. Yeah, I think I did too. Mm. I think I totally did too because I'm a perfect little Enneagram one who needs to be a good little boy. And if you're telling me that I'm going to burn an eternal fire, hell yeah, I'm going to take salvation. <laughs> hell yeah, brother. See, and I was and I was the exact opposite. That's so Oh, that's really? So what in- do you mean, Emily? Oh, I wasn't in fear of that. Like I was again and again, it's probably cuz we didn't talk about it at the church that I went to growing up. But I just fell in love with this idea of I can be made fearfully and wonderfully. I can live as myself. I can face life's challenges and know that I have someone on my side full heartedly and to know that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay Mm, to grow mm. and that there doesn't have to be anything grand more than that like to just know that life is life and that that is enough and to know that there is a god that loves us like i grew up with the exact opposite of that like i didn't have this fearful like i need to become a christian so i don't go to hell or you know face this internal damnation and i remember when we had interim pastors who would come in and preach this fire and brimstone and from a very young age, I sat in the pews like I would do Sunday school. But after a while, like I didn't want to go like I sat in the pews with my mom. I was one of the only kids that did that. And I just remember when those fire and brimstone pastors came and my mom would look at me and I was squirming in my chair, but not because I was afraid. It was just because like this doesn't sound like good news to me. Like this isn't what our this is. not This is different. Mm. Mm-hmm. Why? Why haven't I heard this before? And it pushed me even more into this understanding of abounding love and unconditional love being the foundation and not this idea of having to live my life in fear because I'm afraid of eternal damnation because then I'm not really living. This reminds me of how Josh and I, how I originally thought of Josh and then how we bonded over the first podcast we made together back when he was the very first interview for No Normal People. I'm looking at the book on my shelf. It reminds me of this book, Josh, called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. And I just, I saw you carrying this book under your arm at Off the Leaf. Shout out Off the Leaf. Oh. I just remember being like, Josh and I can hang. Josh and I are cool. <laughs> like we, we're reading the same book. And this book, this book seriously flattened me. There's a chapter about the crucified Christ really? that I like uh, wept. I just wept for like a new revelation of what the gospel could be Mm. when you remove this when you remove jonathan edwards we are sinners in the hands of an angry god and he is just dangling us on a spider's web over the flames and just waiting for us to you know like what kind of 
God do we want? If that's the one you're preached from a young age, of course, our whole thing is going to be about eschatology and our whole thing is going to be about making a, like a good boy report at the end of your life so that you're, you're approaching the footstool of an abusive father at that point. And that's not the God I want to worship, but man, this book, Josh, what, I mean, like what were your takes on that book? Cause this book like completely transformed things for me. Honestly, I read it so long ago that I don't, feel like I remember it very well. That's cool. So I'll tell you another thing that gets me around being afraid of Judgment Day anymore is that uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the theological term, but if I told you that I am a full preterist, do you know what that means? Oh, man, I've heard of this before, but I don't remember what it is because somehow we got fact checked on this. I think on our apocalypse episode. Oh, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So can you remind me because of that episode, I have researched full preterism. And of course, Stephen Henning picks like one of the most heretical views of, <laughs> of the second coming and judgment day. But put that on your bingo so card. Full preterism is that the second coming of Christ has already happened and that the judgment day has actually already happened and that we are living in a like a post judgment day age. Essentially, the argument could go, there are a few schools of thought within preterism that say the transfiguration was like a major moment of like Christ revealing himself to be who he was as a member of the Trinity. And that being like a full revelation of Christ so that the incarnation at his birth was the first coming of Christ and that the transfiguration was the second. Uh, People also talk about the resurrection being the second coming. Or the day of Pentecost, which is where I personally land, where the, the Holy Spirit is, is spread like tongues of fire, and now the Holy Spirit indwells each and every one of us across the earth. That could be the second coming. But then people talk about Judgment Day as if Christ, go figure, uh, Christ was a Palestinian Jew with brown skin, and when he was talking about Judgment Day, he was talking about Judgment Day for the Jewish people, which people commonly tie to AD 70, where Jerusalem and the temple were completely Mm. flattened. Mm -hmm. And I find that argument compelling. So there you go. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. fair. There you go. I think what I find so intriguing about all of that is I don't understand for how much people love to talk about penal substitutionary atonement theory Mm. and like really bump up the idea that Jesus was punished on that day. I don't see why. There's such a consensus in rejecting that being judgment day. Like, if you're going to view Jesus Mm. as being punished, why isn't that judgment day? You know what I mean? Sure. Totally. But yeah, because we talk about, we talk about him taking on the sin of the world all in one moment. Of everyone. Yeah. yeah. And if you need it to be judged at least once, why couldn't- Isn't that Christ accepting our judgment? I would think so. Under that paradigm. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know much about uh, like when preterism, preterism? I say preterism, but um, so you're a preretic. Uh, <laughs> do you know when it was like labeled by someone as heresy or a council or something? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the history of it. Is it pretty old? It is fairly old. Uh, hold on. Um, I can fact check myself if I need to. Uh, let me pull it up. <laughs> In the meantime, I guess the, because there are a few schools of thought, some. Uh, some are partial preterists, and they say that 
where the second coming of Christ could still be interpreted as Pentecost, they still think there is like a an actual event in the future where Christ comes down from the clouds and all that stuff. So there's a little blending of each one. I this is sort of unrelated, but I will bring it back around. Um I really think that it's ideas like this that make me love a show like Doctor Who. Mm. I don't know if either of you watch Doctor Who. Yes. You do. Okay, Emily. So, Stephen, you don't watch Doctor no, Who. No, I do not. So, it's like about this time-traveling alien, and uh, he goes throughout all the universe and throughout human history, and one of the common threads of the show is encountering like the remnants of humanity, like in the far future. Like, humanity is just hanging on by a thread, but mm-hmm. humanity just like pulls through another day and like keeps on trekking. Or I think there's an episode about the last human. There might be a couple of them, actually. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I think I, right? okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And so it, it does some really interesting commentary around, like, the potential end of humanity, whether it's on a cosmological scale or just Earth, or it plays around with some really interesting ideas. And I think maybe why I'm so fascinated with that is because, like, Christian or not, humanity will end at some point. Like, I feel like that's kind of the whole... Uh, basis of judgment day or like an apocalypse or if we're talking about the heat death of the universe like at some point the human era will cease and maybe it will happen that like humanity is just hanging on for a thread for a long time and then finally the last human Mm. dies Mm -hmm. but like what happens then like in my mind there's probably going to be i I think people are going to think differently about the end of humanity when we're at the end of humanity like right now, we're obviously not. There's freaking billions of us. Like we think so differently about the end of the world sure. as humanity. But like when humanity's pretty close to the end, like like it seems clear, I think we're going to think about things differently. And I think that's so intriguing. Oh, uh, oofta. Yeah, that. Ooh, good point, Josh. So here it is. Uh, Praetorism first came around during the Counter-Reformation. It was a, a Jesuit. Yeah, it was. Priest, Louis right? De- Alcazar is his name, published in 1614 during the Counter-Reformation. So there you go. It's nothing new I'm saying either. That's my favorite part about like studying the heretics of (laughs) (laughs) studying the heretics is like, what? What are we even like Christian universalism can be tied to origin? Like, yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) Rob Bell was not the first one to have that idea. Well, in my opinion, it can be tied to Jesus, too. But yeah. What? That's, that's fair. Can I just say, I think the name Louis J. Alcazar sounds like the best evil twin name alias for C.S. Lewis. Oh. Like the name's Louis. Uh, oh, uh, Louis J. Alcazar. Now, that's to be fair, name. that was my Montanan white dude impression of an Italian I was name. Like, he was totally a French. <laughs> it was like French or Italian. Yeah. Oh, even better. That's an even better <laughs> disguise for okay. C.S. Lewis. Okay, so, fair enough. There we go. Yeah. I do think that that idea is really interesting. It's it's just so interesting to me that it got written off as heresy when it seems so close to penal substitutionary atonement well, to me. So then, hold mm. on. This this has a lot to ravel out then. Let's just think about this for a second. If, in fact, it has already happened, what are we living in right now? Not the millennium because it's been more than a thousand years. Uh-oh. Like I don't know what we're in. But we're in a place where we're being invited into, like, living into the second revelation or the second coming of Christ. 
just makes you it just makes it's a very methodist answer isn't it it's like doesn't matter what the end of this age is going to be like we're here for the present we got to live in the present (laughs) okay well to not pull uh i don't know what if assuming the second coming has already happened in some form Mm -hmm. like we take a preterist view wouldn't that then lead us to a millennialism that the whole thousand year reign or whatever is not going to happen and that we are the ones who are living in and bringing about the kingdom of God gradually on earth. Oh, right? so sure. you know that scene in Isaiah? No, it's not Isaiah. It's a psalm, you s- silly Billy. Um, The psalm where it says, <laughs> better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day Stop in your it. Stop it. Better is one day in your house. I knew you were going to do that. I I'm so were. glad Josh did it and not me. <laughs> I have heard. A thousand elsewhere. Y'all done? You good? I'm done. I'm done. I'm promised. Yeah, sorry. Focus. I've Focus. heard that psalm interpreted in, in such a way where, like, the word or the, the number they chose for a thousand was basically to say like then countless elsewhere like one day sure. one day with god is better than countless elsewhere and i've heard that tied to yeah. like millennial dispensationalism or whatever like in the eschatology you sure. talk about a thousand years that might be the way john is writing about it and saying countless years of a christ filled reign yeah cuz it could be either chronos or kairos whereas it's a chronological time or god time kind of kind of concept so we you know we need to have identifiers and so millennia just there you go there's a label on it we feel comfortable with that but i do agree it could be countless infinite who knows because it seems it seems weird to me that that number that 1000 years of christ's reign like that would be a literal number whereas the rest of revelation is quite obviously not literal like why all of a sudden would we take that number and be like it's going to be exactly 1000 revolutions of our earth around the sun <laughs> because when we have numbers we're comfortable with that it's the same with the you know the universe the universe being created in 7 days mm-hmm. christians love numbers yeah yeah that's we love numbers you ever so read the much. bible code we love numbers or the enneagram uh oh uh oh uh steven you reminded me of I think that this is why I feel really comfortable uh, saying that the Bible is giving us more of a a way or like sort of an ideal or a trajectory. Like, I think it makes a lot of sense to say that the authors are saying, look, in in an ideal situation, this is how it would be. Like, Christ would just like reign for forever through us. Like, we would all Mm -hmm. be Christians and we would like follow the way and we would like live in peace, like Mm -hmm. ideally. Yeah. That's what we're shooting for kind of thing. Like, to me, it makes sense that several biblical authors or voices are, like, pointing us towards, look, this is how it could be, should be, quote unquote, will be, vaguely. But I, I feel kind of comfortable having that idea. That's why I like The Good Place. I think that, sh- I think that show kind of captures that in a kind of nice way. Hmm. If you haven't watched uh, it, you should. No, I have watched it. How do you think it? Well, I just think like, okay, for if I'm spoiling anything for those of you who want to watch it or are watching it, please just fast forward past this, blah, blah, blah. I think when Michael, you know, has this idea of like, think this isn't working out. Things need to be different. Things need to be better. And so they meet with the judge and they come up with this idea of here's this trajectory that we're working towards. Like you can try again, try again, try again. Like you can keep at it, learn from your mistakes 
And then once you've done it, ta-da, you've done it. And then when you're ready to move on, when you feel like you've lived all that you've done, you've you've had your fill of the good place, then you can just move on and whatever be, be. It's just, it's nice because it's not this like watered down idea, but it's also not this totally unbelievable idea. Like they capture it in a way that you're like, this could work. This could be, who knows? Yeah, because they're, they're hitching mm. their wagon to that feeling of, you know, you start a vacation, you start a seven day long vacation. And by day three, you're like, I'm a little bored. <laughs> what am yeah, I? That's exactly. Right? Yeah. But I, critics of the good place will say, like, why would we assume our experience of heaven would be would be that cheap or become that boring that fast? Because. But who said it was fast? Well, <laughs> you no, you're right. It doesn't have to be. But like that concept of we would just get bored in eternity. Maybe, but that's because like we're stuck in these in these meat bodies that only experience time in one way. So like who's who's to say? I guess like the the whole premise of the good place is like who's to say? And I agree, that's why it's a fantastic show. I think that's what's nice about it. Though you're bringing me back to this concept of the judge like uh Maya Rudolph's character when she's oh when yeah. she's looking for yes. the uh the humanity ending like garage door button, you know? Yes. And all the Janets hide it. <sighs> They're saying something with that character with which is basically like if, if there is a cosmic judge like why would we assume that that judge would be on the side of humanity? Mm. You know, like it it really calls into question like the primacy of human beings as like the top of the food chain or the top of the evolutionary ladder or the top of the like creation order like we were given stewardship over the earth. Like who's who's to say that an impartial judge would really be like you know, humans are just worth something and we should keep them around. Whereas I think like the concept of our God being a judge is that our our God through Christ has made a statement that humanity is worth mm. dealing with. So he will become one. So mm-hmm. he will die as one at our hands and forgive us anyway through the resurrection. Sure. And again, they're using a very human element of judge in that totally. show. A very human understanding. But yeah, I think... As Christians, if we are watching that show or we're wrestling with this very topic, Steve, I think you nailed it on the head perfectly with what you just said. Oh, well, thank you. Like, yeah, that just that is good news to me. That is life giving. Put that on your bingo card. Life giving. And this kind of goes back to Emily, like way back in episode two, that conversation that we pulled out of our very long No Normal People interview was like our concept Mm. of justice and like, if I'm going to say it, I do think God acts as a judge, but I just think that sense of justice is so tied in with mercy that we would not experience it yeah. as we assume, like, a judge in the, the fifth district of Montana or whatever would, like, hand down a traffic ticket. Sure. You know? Yeah. It's so much different. And I think that judgment and that justice is full on on display with the Christ willing to be crucified by the people he loves and resurrect again to those people and say i'm here now follow me i forgive you sure oh yeah just proving my point thanks jesus if you're listening (laughs) thanks for proving steven's point good job and if you're not shame on you thanks for proving steven's point yes i often thank god for that (laughs) uh I, i don't know if i have any new thoughts about this i i did like this discussion this i do think this judgment stuff is kind of interesting mm I do think even if we we didn't come to this huge revelation, or even if we did, 
I think it's okay that at the end of each episode, we just say, hey, you know what? I didn't really have any new insight. And maybe I was pulled into one direction or another, but it's still good to have these conversations, especially because mm. if they're not being mm. had, then why? what's the point? Like, yeah. why is it even worth thinking about if we're not willing to enter into a space of conversation? And so I know for me, it's going to be years down the road, maybe tomorrow, who knows, where I'm going to say, you know what? This episode was really helpful. Maybe it'll help me for my ordination interviews tomorrow. Like, oh, I have no clue. That's a big deal. That's a big like, deal right there. Is what? it tomorrow? It's tomorrow. It's for oh my, my gosh, yes, good it's for, luck. It's for my continuation. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's just those, it's one of those things where you're like, they still need to be had. And even if nothing new or anything comes from it, it's still good to have because one day someone is going to listen or someone's going to have a very similar question or thought or pondering. And if they stumble across this, they're going to say, hey, other people are questioning or at least thinking about it just like I am. And that's what this is all about. Mm. You know, it's to say, we don't have to have the answer. We can still say, I still have no flipping clue, but at least we're in this space together and to say, this is what raveling out faith and life looks like. Totally. Mm. I tell you what is new that I completely forgot about at the beginning <laughs> is that we have new Patreon supporters who bought us <gasps> drinks this week. <laughs> Our new friends, Elizabeth and Tyler. Hi. Shout out. Hello. This is your shout out. Uh, thank you for buying us drinks this week. Uh, we've already gotten to know one of you in the Discord quite a bit. Um, quite a I think bit. we still have like three of our patrons who haven't said hey yet. So if you want to say hey, come say hey. Please do. Also, if you want to support us on Patreon, there is a link in the show notes. But if that's not something you feel like doing, but you do want to help support us, it'd be awesome if you gave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Emily, you had quite a word for us just now, but do you have a benediction to see us out the door? Oh, I think I do. Whether it's the day of reckoning, whether it's the day that has already reckoned, however we choose to see this idea of judgment, this eschatology of what to expect, what has already happened, just know that we are raveling this out together. And it's a topic that may not mean anything right now, but maybe one day you're going to look back and you're going to say, I'm really glad I had this conversation. So thanks for being a part of it. I love the idea of like, this doesn't matter now, but when we're all being (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. You're all going to hell, kids. When it's all true and we're all burning in hell forever because we didn't believe the right thing. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, that's the kind of pastor I am, clearly. (laughs) Oh, that's funny.